Man, that first song about all the hand motions, that wore me out. I did not look like an athlete, and don't, nobody amen that. Uh, before, we, <laughs> before we, you're not supposed to laugh that hard either. Uh, before we get started, just a reminder, inside of your, your bulletin is an outline that looks like this. It should say at the top, Lesson 2, Responsibility, under the main title, Reboot. The date, February 9th. At the bottom are the small group questions that, uh, that you'll entertain tonight, discuss tonight as you go to small group. And then remember, one of the things we're doing new this year is giving you some stuff during the week to be thinking about as it applies to some of the practical things that we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, primarily about how you change your life and, and the, the prayers and, and some of the scriptures that encourage that, as well as when you change your life and it becomes evident to the people around you, especially that it's God working in you. It is His Holy Spirit that you're walking with that is helping you to uh, blossom in places where you didn't know that you had buds and that fruit of the Spirit and all of that. That is an incredible testimony to the power of God and the beauty of God and the love of God and the grace of God and all of that in our community of San Antonio. And that's what we want to do. We want to be salt in this city. We want to be light in this city. We want to be ambassadors in this city. And hopefully these uh, memorize, pray, and glorify activities will help you to do that. Now, let's get ready to get into the message. Let's ask God to bless us, and then we're going to jump in. Father, we are grateful for the day. We are grateful for this moment. We're grateful for every person that's in this room. And we pray, Father, for the blessing of your presence to be keenly felt, made aware in the hearts of every person here. For we are your children. We are your family. We are grateful that you're our Father. We are grateful that you love us the way that you love us and that you forgive us the way that you forgive us. And that, Father, you are working in us to turn us into many Jesus's, many Christ, to look like our, our brother, the Christ, the Messiah, our Savior. And so as we think about these scriptures and how to change, Father, for you to reboot our life, we ask you to give us the eyes and the ears to see, to hear, to discern, to think, and to be changed, Father, in the ways that you would change us. And this we pray in the name of Jesus, and everyone said... As I said earlier, we're, we're week one into a series about human beings and how they change that we're calling Reboot. And there is one line that kind of forms the thread throughout this entire series. It's only going to be four sermons. We're going to start our series on First and Second Peter, the beginning of March. But the big truth, the big, big series line is this. It's up here on the screen. That God wants to give you a new life where you think you only need a new leaf. At the beginning of the year, we all think about some of the things that we would like to do to become better, to do better, to, to be more efficient, to be happier, to be healthier. And a lot of times we couch it in the language of just turning over a new leaf. And what it is that God offers through His Son Jesus and the cross and salvation and being adopted into His family is so much greater than a new leaf. He gives you a new life where you think you only need a new leaf. And that's why we have to reboot our life. And to reboot, as you know, is kind of a, a technical term. But when you reboot something like a computer, it's to stop its operation in order to get rid of some things, to stop doing some other things in order to start up again differently. And last week, I addressed three truths that must be accepted about humans in general and about our own individual lives in particular to see the need to reboot. And those three uh, truths are these. Number one, you are what? 
You're broken. Number two, your history is repeatable. It doesn't matter if you learn history. It seems like we're just sort of destined to repeat it unless there are some things that we do differently. But the the good news, the great news, is that God wants to reboot your life. And when you accept these three truths, it leads to an, an awakening, a moment of clarity in your life that I'm going to illustrate through two personal stories. I'm sorry to be sort of self-referential this morning, but better to talk about me than you, right? Illustration one, 1978. During my senior year of high school, I had a senior composition um, class, uh, had what I would call old lady English teacher. Uh, in retrospect, she was probably like in her 40s. And she assigned on the first day of class a 500-word essay on something that we did during the summer, due at the end of the week. I said, fine. So I wrote it, turned it in, expecting an A. So on the day that she's turning these essays back to us, she said, you know, I want to do something a little bit different this, uh, this morning. I want to read some examples, anonymously, of course, of some things to do and some things not to do when writing an essay. So let's start with what not to do. She begins reading my essay as an example of what not to do. She read the whole thing. And as she, now don't feel sad for me because I'm taking responsibility for that essay. It was not great. As she read it and she made comments, there is this tiny little mushroom of righteous, prophetic, apocalyptic indignation that's forming in a seat on the back row. And after class, the girl that sits in front of me, she says, uh, I I can't believe she did that to you. Your essay was so expressive. I look back now, she had a crush on me. That essay was terrible. And I said, I know. It's not my fault. She's got something against me. I mean, what's wrong with her? I don't know what she wants. Now, we speed forward another 12 months. I'm a freshman at Abilene Christian University in freshman composition taught by another old lady that was probably in her 30s. And she assigned a paper on any subject that we chose. I chose one, being a Bible major at that time. I chose a religious one. I wrote it. I turned it in. And when I got it back, it had on the last page, no kidding, D minus, 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 (laughs) which is just the Abilene Christian Church of Christ way of saying F plus, plus, plus. (laughs) And I couldn't believe it. And I, you know... I said to myself, if only they had taught me how to, read, uh, uh, to write in high school, and on top of that, another English teacher has got something against me, I need a, a mentor, not a tormentor. <laughs> and then there was a moment of, of quiet clarity as I'm beginning to think about this pattern. And I realized that there was just one thing in common in all of these situations, and it was me. And I began to think, Maybe I should not wait until the night before they're due to write them. Is that smart or what? Maybe I should check out this revolutionary concept of proofreading. Maybe I should work harder. Maybe I should figure out when to use a comma and when not to use a comma. And it was about this time that I experienced really one of the great awakenings of my life. And that was, I have to accept responsibility if it's going to be different next time. I have to accept responsibility for it to be different next time. I was beginning to see 
in some areas that were very important to me, there were some repeat performances of failure, and there was a moment where I had to look at that guy in the bathroom mirror and say, no one is responsible for you except you. So what do you do when you realize that there's some untwisting that needs to happen to your thinking? What do you do when you realize that there is some warp to your perspectives about life and about responsibility and about work and about other people and being held accountable? What do you do when you realize that you're not perfect, that you're not innocent, and there is some of that brokenness in you? Well, I think at the front end of that, you get acquainted with a little word that's found all over the Bible, and it is the word repent. Now, there are two words in Hebrew Scriptures, naham and shuv, which carry the idea of sorrow sometimes. I mean, you know that you need to change, and sometimes it's a very painful event and your heart is broken. It means sorrow sometimes, but mainly it's about the changing of the mind. And in the Old Testament, the idea of repent is turning your dependence back on God. And then there are two words in the New Testament, metanoeo and metamelomai, that carry the idea of changing the mind, changing motivation, changing the direction of your life 180 degrees. And a lot of times when you realize that you've got to go in the opposite direction, there's a lot of sorrow and a lot of grief, and it's usually precipitated with some bad things and painful things that you've done. Now, think about the prodigal son. Think about the prodigal son. He does all the things that he does to his detriment, to his family's detriment, to his, his resource detriment, and he ends up in the far country, and not only that, the far country has gotten itself into him, and he comes to his senses. He comes to his senses and he returns to his father. Repentance, in a matter, manner of speaking, is about coming to your senses. It's about coming to a place where you realize you need to take responsibility for your life and make something, make a decision, make a turnabout, do something that, where the, the future is going to be different than the present. It's, 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 what is our favorite definition of insanity, by the way? It's doing the same thing over and over again and thinking that the results are going to be different, right? Repentance is saying, I am no longer going to be insane. Repentance is coming to our sinners. Repentance is taking seriously the need for change in our life and the big life change, which is the rebirth. And us be, you know, we're given this, this beautiful, great, and grand life in Christ where we are put on a trajectory where we're making all of these little continuing changes all the while we are becoming like Christ. And so let me give you something just to kind of memorize and to think about every day this week. It's, a, it's just a little reminder of the need to repent, and it goes like this. If you're bent, you must repent. Let's say it together. If you're bent, you must repent. If you're bent, and you are, you must repent. Yes, you must. So what does that look like? Because for most of us, when we think about repentance, we think about this, this gigantically hugely emotional moment in our life and for a lot of us it is but there are all of these little moments of repentance where we're making all of these adjustments and changes along the way and repentance looks like this number one i'm going to take responsibility for my life i will take responsibility for my life it doesn't mean that that all of that change is going to be on top of me my power my abilities but at some point 
I'm going to say and I'm going to see the need that I need to be responsible for the decisions that I make. That I need to stop being a blame shifter and become a blame claimer, which is not all that easy. There is something in the fallenness of humans where we just want to throw other people under the bus. We don't want to take responsibility. We don't want to be held accountable. We'd rather throw somebody under the bus. But here's the thing. What doesn't work now is not going to work in the future, and what doesn't work in the future is not going to work now. Think about this. You're at the gates of heaven on judgment day, and you're there in front of the judge, and the judge says, I'm sorry, you can't come in. And you say, well, it's not my fault. Devil made me do it. Well, what doesn't work now is not going to work then, and what doesn't work then is not going to work now. And this pattern in the human being is set in motion from the very beginning of time. Think of the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1 and 2, you have the creation account, all of its goodness except one thing, the loneliness of man. And in the loneliness of man, God says, I'm going to create a woman. He creates a woman, he brings her to the man. Adam sees Eve, Eve sees Adam, and he breaks out into a love song. And he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In other words, wow. And we get all warm inside thinking, man, this is such a wonderful thing that God is doing. Let's not get too carried away because Adam, in just a couple of verses, is going to throw the bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh under the bus. Genesis 3 rolls around. Everything is great. And then a serpent begins talking to Eve, tempts Eve. She decides that she's going to disobey the one rule that is in the entire world. Don't eat of this tree over here. She's going to break it because it looks beautiful, and she desires it more than she desires God. And so she eats it. She gives it to Adam. They realize in their sin that they are naked, that they are exposed. They hide from God. God comes early in the morning. He encounters them. They say, you know, we were hiding from you because of our nakedness. He goes, who told you? Why are you hiding? I mean, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of that tree? And the man said in verse 12, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. In other words, you know, God is calling Adam on the carpet for this event that has taken place that's going to change the course of the world. And he says, well, you made her and she's the one that gave it to me. There is something in human beings that wants to say, it's not my fault. Don't blame me. It's somebody else's fault. You're you're more at fault in this than I am. And from that point on, human beings in the history of the world and in your own personal history, we have become expert at shifting the blame away from us. So, first, in repentance, I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to be responsible. Number two, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest. And maybe for the first time, be honest. But once you get on this trajectory of change, it's certainly not going to be the last time. And you know as well as I do, there are a lot of reasons why we don't want to be honest. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be held accountable. We don't want to deal with the consequences. If we admit this mistake or take the blame, we may not get the promotion. Others may look down on us. Some of that may be true. A lot of the time it's imagined. I have a friend that is, uh, after a career in the military, uh, as an engineer, he now works for an aircraft manufacturing company up in the Great Lakes near Chicago. And as a project manager on some of their bigger projects, uh, he's working away, working away, working away at his desk. His boss comes in and says, hey, do you have that report? 
and the report was not done. And he looks up at his boss and he says, to be honest with you, I completely forgot about it. I'll have it on your desk first thing in the morning. And the boss said, okay, great, and starts to walk out the door, stops at the threshold of the door, turns around, comes back and says, you know what, in all of my history as a boss in this company, I've never had anybody take the blame for their own mistake. Sometimes we don't want to be honest about our life because we don't want to be seen as weak or damaged or or some other kind of thing. Or, Or perhaps we don't want to be honest about our life and talk about some of the mistakes that need to change in our life or some things that we have done wrong because of our religious, legalistic way of looking at salvation that doesn't have room for mistakes because it doesn't have room for grace. James is the brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. And if there was ever a little brother that looked up to an older brother and saw an older brother that didn't make any mistakes, was always obedient, was always loving, was always this, this, great, this great older brother, it was, it was James looking up at Jesus. And there was a long period of time in James's life where he did not accept that his older brother was the Messiah. And then there was one day where he came, I mean, just the, the greatest moment of his repentance in his life was when he came to his senses about who Jesus was. And he writes a letter later on in his life, and every time I read this, I think about what he must have thought in having to come to grips and to be honest and to take responsibility for his belief system when he wrote this this letter to the church in general. And he says in the fifth chapter, he says, Therefore, Confess your sins to each other. There there is something incredibly powerful about taking responsibility for your life, of the decisions, of, of the part that you played in where your life is headed or what it is hit or where it has gotten to. And there's something incredibly powerful about being honest about your life. I mean, I, I should have said, well, maybe the teacher didn't like me. Maybe that teacher didn't like me. It's possible. But honestly, I was more interested in goofing off. I didn't do my best. I need to grow up. Or it might be some of the other things that you hear through the years. The reason that I have the credit card debt is I'm materialistic. That's my part in this. Or, yes, I have a stressful job, but I'm the one who needs to figure out how to get some exercise and not to stress eat every night. Or it might be something else, like the reason I'm in all of this debt is because I care too much about what other people think about me rather than what God thinks of me or who I am in Christ. Or the reason I seem to go from one bad relationship to the next, to the next, to the next, is that I have a problem with loss. Or I just don't like the feeling of loneliness at the end of the day. For others, it's, you know, the reason I lost another job is that I have an issue expressing anger. Or I have a problem with honesty. Or I'm not disciplined enough to show up. Or the reason I feel angry is because I have a problem with saying no, or I have a problem with forgiveness, or the reason that this got out of hand and got out of control and got to the point it is presently is because I'm too afraid to confront and I didn't ask the hard questions. 
being honest about your life. Being honest about your life is sometimes a rough go. But it's the beginning of, of just seeing your responsibility in your day and in your life or the things that are in your control or the decision that you have made is one of the most liberating things that you can do. Because number two, it brings you to a place, and we'll end with this point, I will rely on God's love and power for change. You know why so, so many people... You know why so many people talk a good fight when it comes to this relying on God's power and relying on God's love? They can talk a good fight about it, but it's the same old, same old, same old throughout all their life. It's because they've never been honest about their life. They know the right things to say. Yeah, it's God's power. Yeah, it's God's love. Yes, I'm a forgiven. But they can never be honest about their life because that love and that power is not the context for their faith. What is the... What is the what is the thing that you most need to cross that line from keeping you know, the blame and, and, and the responsibility hidden and moving into the light of that kind of change? Sometimes it's the understanding that, yeah, you know what, regardless of what you have done, the context for your life as a, as a son, as a daughter of God, is His love. You know, one of the coolest things that my father ever did for my brothers and for me when we were growing up, he just, this, this statement that he made over and over and over again, he would say to us, I mean, I, one of my uh, earliest memories of something that I remember my dad saying was, it doesn't matter what you've done, you can always come home. It doesn't matter what has happened, it doesn't matter, you can always come home and that's something that god is saying to you through christ every day that there is a love that is unparalleled it's it's indescribable it's unfathomable in which you now exist as my child that you cannot nobody can snatch you out of my hand he says in romans chapter 5 and verse 8 this love is demonstrable God demonstrates His own love for us. You can see it in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, so many of us, have, we have to get rid of this old, terrible way of thinking that the only way that God is ever going to accept me is if I get myself cleaned up. If I get my life in order. That's the only way He's going to accept me. That is absolutely totally wrong. While we were still what? Sinners. He is showing His love for us. How? In Christ dying for us. That is the context of your life. Or sometimes, maybe the reason that uh, you know, it's the love, or, or sometimes we don't believe it's the, the power. You know, I mean, okay, I, God loves me, but can I really change? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Please never doubt it. Yes. Because there is a power as powerful as that love that God is endowing your life of faith and your walk with Him every day that puts you on a trajectory to be able to come 
each day in His presence and know that you are loved and to know that there's power and there's strength and there's wisdom available to you in order to make the changes and you do begin to look like salt and you do begin to look like light and you do begin to be that beautiful, disruptive presence in the world because you look like the Christ. You know, sometimes we say, Everybody else but me. I love this verse uh, three chapters later in Romans where Paul writes, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. Preach a whole sermon on that, I won't. But here's the thing. Sometimes sometimes we think, oh yeah, Christ died for me, Christ died for me, Christ died for me, but I can never change, I can never change, I can never change. I mean, if God has given to you what is most precious to Him, His Son, why will He not give to you what you need when He's already given you the number one thing? Why would He withhold anything from your life that is going to make you beautiful and glorify Him in this world? I mean, one of the things that, you know, Ellen and I talk about this from time to time, that the, the people that are the most courageous people, the most heroic people to, to us, are the people that can enact change through God's power, to become a different person. Think, of, think about the people in this congregation that you know, and you may be one of them. Think about who you were a couple of years ago. Think who you were a decade ago, and think about who you are now. Where there was anger, there's now self-control. Where there was meanness and, and, and a volatile spirit, there's now kindness. Where there was fighting, there's now love. Where there was, where there was uh, anger, and, and where there was a lack of self-control and, and indulgences and, and addictions and a life that has gone off the rail, there is now a life that is ordered and beautiful. And even though you've made yourself a slave to God, you feel free. Free in the sense of all of those things that once enslaved you and chained you to the ground and changed you, uh, chained you to the earth. It is because there is nothing that God will withhold having given you the greatest gift, His Son. Which means that the greatest gift in everything underneath is yours in order to become like the Christ and to live that life, a relationship with God, that life of change that not only turns you into something beautiful, but brings Him glory. It starts with saying, I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to be responsible. I know that I'm not to blame for everything that's ever happened in my life. There were some things that were out of my control, but here's the thing. I am responsible for me. And I am going to be honest 
about my life. I'm going to be honest about the messes that I've gotten myself into. I'm, I'm going to be honest about the trajectory and the patterns of, of failure that have been throughout my life. I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to be honest. And I'm going to rely on God's love and power for these changes to happen in my life so that I find myself moving towards God on a daily basis and not only finding happiness, but as God is moving into my life and not only working in my life, but walking, working through my life, I feel blessedness. And it just brings glory to Him. And it helps people to see around me, whether they're at work or in the family or you know, college or high school, neighborhood, wherever it may be, that there's something powerful about becoming a disciple of Jesus. There's just something so powerful about it. And if you want to experience that this morning, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front, and they'll talk to you about anything that is going on in your life right now, and they will pray with you, and they will counsel you, and they will walk with you as you seek to walk with God and become more like Christ each day. And if that, if that describes you in any way, come down and talk to them as we stand and we praise God together.